0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that we have, for many, many years, been in this place, studying your word, ministering to so many, supporting missionaries, praying and fellowshipping for and with one another. These are the essential gifts that the Spirit delivers as he indwells the believer and calls us us together in one body. And, Father, we don't have to make it any more complicated than that. But Father, in those things is so much already. There is so much opportunity to serve, so many ways in which we can be called to grow and, and mature in our faith. Pro- I pray, Father, this morning as, as an opportunity for us to just remember that it's not a routine, it's not a ritual, it's not an obligation, it's an honor and a privilege and a blessing that in this faith that you have delivered to us, we have become part of something new and and wonderful, the body of Christ, your ambassadors on earth, your children. And with those honors and with those privileges, Father, come some requests and commissions and obligations, things, Father, that you've put upon us so that we may glorify your name in this world. And we ask, Father, that we would be reminded this morning as we study your word about what it means to obey a calling and what it means, Father, to answer when we've been given the privilege of knowing you personally. May we feel a, a pull on our heart. May, may we sense the Spirit's leading in our life. May we set aside the many reasons we've used in the past for why we couldn't be the one who answered the call. Work through our obedience, Father. And in your word, teach us, Father, from the life of a man who did hear and did obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. At the end of chapter 6 last week, when we ended in chapter six twenty-two, I made mention of the fact that the last verse of that chapter was a challenging one and probably deserved a few more moments of thought, even as we come into seven today. According to all that God commanded him, so he did. What a remarkable testimony to the faith of one man. We don't need to recount all that he was told that was just last week. The boat, the animals, the effort required to do that, the way in which the world Undoubtedly mocked him day in and day out as he went about this impossible task. And we also noted that throughout the entire story of Noah, and all the times God speaks to him and all the amazing things He asks of this man, there is never a moment in the scriptures where we hear Noah speaking back to God. Noah, it appears, is a man who listens and obeys. He doesn't question, he doesn't argue, He doesn't make excuses. Noah heard what I think is probably the most difficult assignment in all the Bible. I I would challenge you to find something harder to do than what Noah was given to do. And he said not a word to God in questioning those instructions. And he obeyed all that the Lord commanded him to do. The only thing the Bible ever says about Noah's response is what it says here in verse 22 and what it will repeat twice more in the story of Noah. Once again today, in fact, in 7 verse 5, it says Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. In fact, in the Hebrew, this verse is is actually repetitive in its phraseology in in Hebrew. It emphasizes Noah's utter obedience, unquestioning obedience. And in that respect, Noah is perhaps arguably the most obedient man in the Old Testament. Other men receive lesser instructions, men like Jonah, men like Gideon even. And yet those men with lesser tasks questioned God or, or in some cases even rebelled entirely against those instructions. And Noah amazes me so much because it's the combination of how great a thing he is given and how perfectly he seems to obey in what he's told. We all face, I think, at different points in time, extreme circumstances, difficult instructions from God. And if we remember back to what Noah saw in his day, there's at least, I think, the hope of encouragement when we know he was no better a person. He wasn't Superman. There was no S underneath his cloak. This is a normal man in all other respects. He lived in a world that had never seen rain. Not once, according to Scripture. And he was called in that kind of a circumstance to build a giant boat far from water. And he obeyed without hesitation. And now add to that fact, the fact that there is no evidence that God spoke to Noah at any time during those intervening 120 years from the moment he was first given the instruction until... Today, as we see in chapter seven, when he's told to finally enter the ark, that's better than a hundred years with only what he heard at the beginning. Noah's example is one I use on occasion when people ask, how do you know when perhaps you're supposed to move on to something new? People will say, well, how do you know when it's time to leave? How do you know when it's time for to move on? What, what, what do you look for? And the thing I come back to is this. I come back to this and I say, do the last thing you heard God tell you until you hear something else. And if it takes 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, don't let that cause doubt in your mind concerning the instructions you know you heard. Because Noah worked for 120 years. I wonder if there weren't days along the way as he built that boat that he thought to himself, am I crazy? Did I hear this right? Is this really what you want me to do? It's going to take my whole life. I'm just spending years, years and years doing this. If he was a normal man, and I'm sure he was, then he thought that at times. Probably in the midst of a fight with his wife or a, the mocking of the crowds outside his home, whatever was going on, there were moments, I know, when he may have questioned what he was doing. What an example of faith that this man never stopped. Whatever he thought, he never stopped. We could do worse than to model our own obedience after this man, because we live in a world today in which obedience is not recognized as a virtue. Obedience is not commonly held up in the culture. Disobedience and rebellion is held up in the culture. Reminds me of the story of a father who had a rebellious young daughter, and he was working very hard to try to bring her into alignment with his will. And after a particularly rough day at the office, he comes home. He's really in no mood to trifle with disobedience. And when bedtime finally rolled around, parents, you know the routine, right? Getting the kid to go to bed can be tough sometimes. And this young daughter had made it hard in recent months, so he decided tonight was just not going to be a night to play around. He was going to lay down the law. And he comes to his young daughter before she has said anything to him, and he just unloads on her. He says, we're putting on your PJs, we're brushing your teeth, we're reading one book, and then it's lights out, you're in bed. And as he yells in a stern voice to his young daughter, her lower lip starts to quiver, and she gets that look on her face that little girls do. And she runs to him, throws her little arms around his neck, and hugs him gently and says, Daddy, we learned in Sunday school about little boys and little girls who don't have any mommy or daddy. And as he hears these words, Daddy's attitude starts to soften a little bit, and he he thinks to himself, even after I was so stern and, and rough with her, here she is, grateful to even have a dad. And he felt tears kind of welling up in his eyes, and as he begins to rethink his commands and maybe say two books, he hears her whisper, maybe you could go be their dad. obedience is just not appreciated much anymore. We're always looking for the way out. But Noah is perfect in respect to obedience. And with that little bit of humor, let's go into chapter 7, not forgetting, I hope, the lesson of Noah here as our model. Let's watch our, our perspective model, our, our perspective standard of obedience in the face of a difficult call. Let's watch as he continues in his work here. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal, by sevens, a male and his female, and of all the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky, by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made, Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah." In chapter 6, God said, if you remember, that his spirit would strive with man for only 120 years. We remember back then that that was a statement concerning how long God was giving the world prior to this moment, to this flood. He was not going to allow the circumstances of that day to continue any longer than 120 years from when he made that statement. And since now is the time for the flood, we can do the simple math. It's obviously been 120 years now since he made that statement. Now the ark is ready, so God gives Noah the instructions, it's time to enter. And earlier we remember he had told Noah he was going to have two of every kind come to him so that he could put them onto the ark. And now here he adds something to that instruction. You notice the number changed, at least in one case. Noah now is going to bring seven of some animals, while two of the rest. And the distinction that's made here is of clean versus unclean animals. Now, if you look through the text I just read there, There appears to be a couple of points in which it can be confusing. Is he changing the number of all birds to seven and just some of the land animals? No, there's a bit of a summarization taking place in the Hebrew, but the distinction is made at the beginning. There will be seven of clean, two of unclean, similarly for birds, seven, in some cases two, and in others. The Mosaic law itself established what animals were clean. From our point of view, that's where we go to learn about what is clean and what is unclean. We go to the Mosaic law. But obviously, by this point in history, as Noah does these things, the law had not yet been given in its fullness. But yet, seeing these instructions, we come to conclude that God had some way, had some manner of revealing to Noah which ones he felt were clean and which ones were not. Even if Noah has not received the full law that Moses received, nevertheless, he knows enough. God has made clear enough to him which animals are which. Now, why does God ask Noah to bring additional clean animals? Well, the answer comes actually later in the story. We can jump there just for a moment to see one verse and get our answer for today. In chapter 8, if you jump ahead for a moment, in chapter 8, verse 20, this is after they've left the ark following the flood, we read this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Well, there's your answer. He needed some extras for the burnt offering on the altar. Clearly, if there had only been two of the clean animals, this would be the one and only offering that ever would have been made of clean animals. Then they'd be done. So God makes a provision for additional animals for this purpose. Now, the moment God speaks to Noah in verse 1 of chapter 7, back in chapter 7, at that moment we have reached a point on the earth in which there are non-righteous living on the earth, but for the ones, the eight, who are going to enter this ark. We know that as a principle, by matter of principle. We saw it, for example, back in chapter 5 when we noted that those who are of the line of the seed of Messiah, those who descend from Seth and carry the line of, of the seed, the line of the promise, those who are righteous as God appoints, those men all are either dead, raptured, in the case of Enoch, or on the ark, in the case of Noah, come the day of the flood. The last living man... The last living righteous man who does not enter the ark is who? Methuselah. And as his name told us, when he dies, it shall come. We must therefore conclude that as this moment now comes and they enter the ark, Methuselah has died. If not on the very same day, at least very near to this time. That leaves no one left on earth apart from Noah's family who are righteous by faith. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being one of eight people left on the earth who know the living God? How alone can you be? This family was truly alone. And now consider the patience of God and the wisdom of his work through men. When I look at the calendar, it was 969 years earlier than this moment when God directed a father to name his son Methuselah so that that man's name would be prophetically speaking for 969 years concerning God's plan. And then 600 years earlier from this moment, God brought Noah into the world with a name that means rest. And then 120 years earlier from this moment, he directs Noah to begin building a boat. And then 20 years after that, Noah receives his three sons when he's 500 years old. God has set in motion all of these events Going back hundreds of years so that on his appointed day, they would all culminate in exactly what he intended and the flood and its destruction of ungodly men would appear according to God's will. So maybe we ought to ask ourselves a question. What is God doing even now in our lives individually? Perhaps what has he been doing for decades in preparation for something? Have you ever stopped to think like that? It's not something we think about as often as we should, but consider it from Noah's point of view. Long before Noah knew he would be building a boat, there was a man named Methuselah already prophetically indicating that there would be this coming event. You know, the Lord may not do what we want Him to do when we want Him to do it, but as the saying goes, His timing is always perfect. And He's always at work in our lives, through our lives, around us, and As a smarter man than I once said, he invites us to participate in that work that's going on around us. Henry Blackaby made a great study around that very principle called experiencing God. God is always at work. God was at work in the world around Noah in just these simple ways I listed, but probably in many other ways as well. And he calls us into a relationship when he appoints on a day that he decides he makes us aware of himself and the work that he's doing, and then he invites us and calls us into joining that work. That's how God is at work all the time. So if I were to make a very specific application for us today, I might think about these opportunities in ministry, and I might ask myself, well, if everything God has been at work doing in their circumstances has culminated for the moment in a call here this morning that I would join them, who am I to dismiss that too quickly? Who am I to just think that's another announcement from the pulpit and then go on with my week? Maybe I should stop and ask myself, have things not been working in my life to bring me to this moment so that I might be one who's ready to take on something, either in the local community or somewhere else? Or is it something else I don't even know about that's being placed before you with a neighbor or a family member or a friend or a workplace issue or something? And, and rather than see it as just happenstance and the way life evolves, ask yourself, wait a minute, is there a big plan here? And I just happen to be a piece of it, and for a moment now I'm beginning to see it. Now the question is, are you willing to do what Noah did, which is obey, join in? You could define obedience as working God's plan instead of working your own plan. Working God's plan instead of working your own plan. Because I can guarantee you, if Noah hadn't built the boat, he wouldn't have been doing nothing for 100 years. He'd have been busy. He'd have been working on something. He just wouldn't have been working on the right thing. But as Jesus said, we have to be willing to set down our own work first before we can pick up the cross and follow him. There's a great exchange that I I thought was worth a moment of diversion just to remember out of Luke. Luke chapter 9, in verse 59, Jesus says this. He said to a man, follow me. But the man said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you... Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Speaking of timing here, Jesus says, If the things of your everyday work and life and family are so important, they cause you to put on hold obedience to the call of God, then you're not worthy of that call for your priorities are wrong. And in the similar way, Noah, for whatever he may have wanted to do, put all of the rest of his life on hold so that he could obey this call. What a great standard for us to live up to. Back to the text in verse 7, God announces that Noah and his family of seven must enter the ark. And he says, "...because..." He will bring rain, and you notice he says, I'll bring it in seven days. We're still seven days now from the flood beginning, but yet it's still the time to enter the ark. This is now when he has to go in. Now, I've said already, this is the first time rain has fallen in the history of the world. Remember back in Genesis 2, God says that the world as he designed it and made it was a world that was watered by mist that rose up from the ground. There's a method, there's a manner of moving moisture onto the ground that's different than the one we see today, and it was the one God designed the world with initially, originally. But now, in a dramatic way, God's going to change that pattern. He's prepared now to bring rain. Initially, it floods the world. After the flood, it continues, obviously. We'll talk more about that in chapter 8 and 9. But notice that Noah and his family are entering the ark here well before that rain begins, seven days. Seven days before they're entering Now, they haven't seen anything change yet. If you were there on this day with them and you looked around the world, whatever it looked like in that day, it still looked the same. And now God has predicted a disaster seven days into the future. And he says, it's time to get in that ship. It's filled with animals. Noisy, smelly animals that need a lot of care and feeding. The world is watching. And I'm sure at this point, his boat has become the sight to see. The Disneyland of its day. Only as the crowds show up, you can be sure they're not approving of what they're saying, right? This is an ungodly world. And they are mocking this man, undoubtedly mocking this man. Now, can you imagine how difficult it must have been for all eight of these people to enter this giant boat when the sun is still shining and people are calling them fools Now, we know the end of the story, and that makes it hard, I think, for us to really appreciate what it was like in the moment. Put yourself back in time and think about it for a second. Yeah, they went to the effort to build a boat. But what compels you to enter under these conditions? Paul says faith is the hope in something unseen. Hebrews says the same thing. This is faith. You have a world here filled with people, but God has declared only eight are righteous. We know that that righteousness was not earned. It was... It was given to them by God on the basis of their faith in the one who did earn it, who is Christ. So Noah and his family are righteous because they believe, because they had faith in God's word. But what did they believe in? I mean, did they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Had that been preached to them specifically in their day? Is that why they are declared righteous? Righteous? Well, I tell you the answer is no. There's no evidence in Scripture that anybody sat them down and explained there would be a man, his name is Jesus, he'd be from Nazareth, he'd get on a cross. I don't think that they had that insight. I may be wrong, but there's no indication in Scripture they knew that. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11, when it recounts the stories of those in the Old Testament who exhibited faith, it doesn't relate that these men and women knew the gospel. It talks about what they did know. What they were given, some word, some instruction, some statement from God, a, a word that they had to believe in. And based on their faith in that word, they acted in a certain way. So, what did Noah's family have from God? What word? What instruction? The instruction they received was that in a world that had never seen rain before, I'm going to bring rain. And into this world I'll bring so much rain that unless you build this boat, you will not survive this coming flood. That's God's word. Now, do you take it in faith or not? Hebrews says specifically concerning Noah, Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. That's a reference to rain. In reverence, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Hebrews tells us that what defined Noah's faith was his activity to build this boat and, more specifically, he entered it. He entered into this ark based on the faith he had in God's Word. What more visible proof do you need of Noah's faith than that he entered into an ark seven days before there was any proof, any evidence at all that he'd even need it? If you don't believe in God's promise, if you happen to, let's say, have been one of Noah's family and you've heard from dad, this is what God has said. This is the word you have to believe. Would you enter that ark if you didn't believe in that word? There's false teachers who build huge churches, who spend their entire careers as false teachers, as unbelievers, wolves in sheep's clothing, in other words. Building things. Why? Because it serves their own interests. It suits them. It feeds their pride. It feeds their pocketbook. There's something in it. For them, it doesn't require that they have faith in the living God to do church like things. And I would tell you that it doesn't require faith in the living God to decide to build a giant boat. No, what took faith was to get in the boat, to actually walk in that thing. Faith brings response to God's Word. And by the response that Noah and his family made when he entered the ark, we see evidence, we see proof of the faith that he had in God's Word. He entered that ark because he knew a flood was coming. It was a harder step, I think, than we can imagine, and it no doubt would have brought ridicule in that day. If you think it's hard to enter the boat, what do you think is going on in their minds when they've been in there, let's say, day five, day six, and everyone's outside making fun of them because they're stuck in this boat on dry ground with a sunny sky. And each of those who saw and heard Noah's testimony as he entered that ark were dead while they stood outside that boat, even before the flood showed up. Here you find another parallel and a picture for the coming judgment. You remember I've mentioned that throughout the story of Noah, we're going to find pictures or parallels between this moment of judgment and the greater judgment God is planning for the world. And he set this one up so that we would see those parallels and learn from them. In the future day, and I would say perhaps very soon, God has said that the righteous who live on earth will be removed for a short time so that he can bring judgment on those who remain on the earth. The time period in which those who are removed will be gone is exactly a period of seven. In Noah's day, it was seven days. In this future removal, it will be seven years. But there will be a period in which the righteous have been taken away from the earth, leaving none behind that are righteous, not initially. And then God will begin a work on the world in judgment. We call that the rapture. And Noah's family, the world's entire number of righteous... Entering the ark pictures the church being taken and entering with Christ into the heavenly while God then begins a work of judgment on the world. And the sevens are there to help us connect the dots. Seven days, seven years. And we are hidden from the world during that time, just as Noah's family was, in a sense, hidden inside the ark from the world. And we are taken as an early testimony to the world so that they will know that there is a coming judgment. Let's look at chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 in one last section for the day. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded them. And the Lord closed it behind him. So, true to his word, God brings the flood. Now, we're going to study this event from two perspectives. First, today, let's examine the facts as we read them here, as they relate to the pictures and the shadows that God is presenting through this story. Next week, primarily for the sake of time, next week we will look at the nature of the physical events. We'll look at the the actual circumstances of the water and where it comes from and all that God does to accomplish this remarkable event. So I certainly hope you can be with us next week as we really examine the how of what goes on here. But for today, let's just understand the significance of it in the time we have before communion. For example, verse 11, the this, this significance of this event, the monumental significance of this event is emphasized here by Moses' careful accounting of the day on the Jewish calendar when this event took place. Moses says it was on the second month, the 17th day of that month. What we assume Moses is doing, I think it's a safe assumption, is he is imposing the Jewish civil calendar onto this event. He's not suggesting that Noah knew the Jewish calendar in his own day, but God has revealed to Moses that when this event occurred, it happened on this day within the Jewish civil calendar. By that same calendar, this day is the day Jesus resurrected from the grave. Again, Jesus is the ark, remember? He is the one who saves us from the coming judgment. The boat pictures Christ. And just as the saving work for our sake was done on the day Jesus rose, that's the day in which our salvation was made sure for us. Similarly, the day that boat rose, floating on the judgment waters, was the day on the Jewish calendar When Jesus did the same by his own body. So the work of that boat is continuing to be a picture of the work of Jesus to save those who are in him by faith. Noah and his family were saved the day they entered the ark. Moses makes that clear too. Did you notice? They're saved on the day they went into the ark. But they went into the ark seven days before the water. They weren't saved the day the water showed up, they had been saved seven days earlier. It mattered not what day the flood arrived. The flood could have waited 10 years. The flood could have come a century later. As long as they were in the ark, they had already been saved. For us, the scriptures say that there is a day appointed for salvation for each of us. And as that day arrives and we come into faith, scripture says we enter into Christ. The picture is such a nice one, right? Walking into a boat, entering into Christ and the Bible says we are justified by faith. We are placed in a state of acquittal before the great and high judge who must and will judge all who live. We have been acquitted. Even on the day we believe, we've been acquitted. We are essentially, in a sense, like the family of Noah. We've entered into the ark. We're sitting in the boat right now, as, as it were. We are in Christ by faith. We have been saved. It doesn't really matter when the judgment comes, now does it? We're in, the door's been closed, we aren't getting out, and the water's not getting in. And just like Noah couldn't get out of the boat, we aren't getting out of Christ. We are in. Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 1 Let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of us may have seemed to come short of it. Hebrews warns us as as a community. Let us be concerned if while this door is still open and the boat is still sitting on the ground letting people enter, if, if some of us, some of those who may congregate or who know us or who are in our families, if any of them have failed to enter, let us fear for their sake. Let us, let us have a sense of urgency about their needs and their salvation because for as long as it is called today, there is an opening in the ark and people can enter, but there will soon be a day when that is over. Let us fear for their sake and let it motivate us perhaps to repeat the call of the gospel, the invitation to enter, to know what we know. But then having come to the same assurance that Noah's family received, knowing we've entered, we can also be confident that we are now in Christ. That's how Paul can say in chapter 8 of Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's like we've entered into a boat and the door's been closed behind us. Who can condemn us at that point? The world will try, but God won't. But there's only one way to enter. We've talked about the design of the ship and we noted today that the door was closed by God. But before we even discuss the closing, did you note the fact there's only one way in? One entrance. There's one door. In Noah's day, it wasn't going to be possible for someone who came up along the side of the boat while the door was still open and said, you know, I think I'd like to just ride on top. I can hold on pretty good. I'll just wait on top. And that way I can stay away from all that smell and discomfort. You had one choice, one door, enter that way or no way at all. There was no second chance. There were no alternatives. Jesus taught exactly this point in John chapter 9 and 10 to the Pharisees. Using this analogy of a door and an entrance and people who would prefer to come at Jesus or come at God an alternative fashion. To enter the kingdom some other way, as if there were another way. He describes it this way, talking to the Pharisees. He says in verse 39 of chapter 9, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see. And... Those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, then you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him, the the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He isn't talking about an ark. He's talking about a sheep pen, but the analogy works either way. There is one way into salvation, one way to enter the kingdom of God, to have access to salvation. It's through Christ. In Noah's day, it was the ark. One door, one boat, one way. There were not a hundred ways to save yourself from the flood, only one. And likewise today, there are not a hundred ways to God. There are not a thousand ways to be saved. There's not one way for every person. There's only one. Jesus declared it. He is the way. Enter through him or enter not at all. And those who would claim another way are like thieves and robbers hoping to jump over the wall and come in some other way, as it were. But it's not possible. And the sheep, God's chosen people, do not follow, but they know their master. As we come back into the story next week, we'll see how the literal events play out, watching how God did this miraculous work on earth while saving this family. But notice that door was closed by God. They're in there. They're not coming out. God himself had to be the one to close it for all we're already in. We'll end on this, Ephesians 1.13. Paul says, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The metaphor works beautifully with that verse, doesn't it? After you entered in, after you were in Christ, after you believed, you were sealed by God through the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. For I know if it were up to me, there are days I would probably walk out because I'm foolish, but God is stronger than the foolishness of men. Amen. Heavenly Father, Father, I ask that we would be shown in the story of Noah a reflection of our own walk, for better or for worse. Father, let us take the lessons of Noah's life and remove the details that he experienced, the flood and the boat and the impossibility of so many things he was asked to do. And in its place, Father, I pray that the Spirit would cause us to reflect on things in our own life. Bring the lessons home to us, Father, about where we can serve better and how we can obey differently and how we've heard things and yet we have chosen to set them aside, perhaps. And perhaps also, Father, an encouragement, For many of us, at times, by the power of the Spirit, have heard and obeyed, have made tough decisions and followed difficult courses of action and have been a testimony in our many years of following You in one way or another. And I pray, Father, that we would be encouraged to remember that we too have a testimony, in some sense, similar to Noah. So that when the world is down on us or when we feel the conviction of sin or the enemy is lying to us, Father, I pray You'd help us remember that we can, in fact, obey. It's not too far out of reach. And with the things you may place before us, whether things we've heard already today or things that are yet to be given to us, I pray, Father, you give us a heart of obedience, one that is receptive and watching your work and, and anxious to see how we can participate. And then when the opportunities are given to us, Father, I pray you would take away our fears and take away our doubts. Don't cause us, Father, to measure our our opportunity to obey in human terms, but cause us to think about it in eternal terms so that we would measure with the right measure and count the cost. Thank you, Father, for a small church full of loving and godly people who care to know your will and to obey it and who honor your word and praise your name and serve in their gift. May we always be a part of such a fellowship. And uh, I thank you, Father, for this morning and ask that as we are sent out, you would be with us and bring us back next week. In Jesus' name, amen.